Over the past few years, big tech has fallen out of favor with many in the political class. Companies such as Facebook, Amazon, and Google are increasingly seen as threats, monopolies that are exploiting our data and hurting innovation. Some Democratic presidential candidates have pledged to break up big tech, and those on the nationalist populist right have begun to demand a tech new deal. But is this the best way to deal with the challenges of our increasingly digital economy? I'm delighted to be joined today by Will Reinhardt to discuss these and other tech challenges. Will is the Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum, where he specializes in telecommunications, internet, and data policy. He's also a Bastiat Fellow at the Mercatus Center. Will, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. Let's start with, uh, I think, maybe the most obvious question is that America's largest technology companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Google, Facebook, they seem really unpopular in Washington <laughs> yep. and among political activists, really on both sides now. But whenever I look at like consumer surveys, they still seem really popular yeah, yeah, among everyday really Americans. Yeah. So what do you think explains that discrepancy? Uh, that's actually a super interesting question. I, I think what you're seeing, especially within Washington is really this, this, I mean, you know, some, some are obviously calling it a tech lash, but ultimately what I, what I think is yeah the tech lash, the tech lash, uh, I, I, I really personally, I don't know. I mean, there are some obvious reasons, you know, the, the relationship with, uh, of Facebook with the 2016 election and, and, you know, this question of fake news and whether or not democracy is being harmed by the fact that we have Twitter and Google and Facebook. So those sorts of things seem to be driving, at least in Washington, this concern over big tech companies. Uh, so there's more of that kind of, you know, political concern. There's also the competition concern, at least in, in, in Washington that's occurring as well, that these are obviously large, large companies and they don't seem to have the, don't seem to have natural competitors. You know, that doesn't really seem to be a major competitor of Facebook, even though Facebook is somewhat competitive in all these other sorts of spaces in the same way that like Google doesn't really have a natural competitor in search, but it has, you know, it's competitive in, you know, the Android system and it's competitive in, you know, in like the, the, against AWS and their cloud services. So, this kind of changing nature of competition, I think, is is one part of it, as well as the other part that I've mentioned to you, which is clearly that it's political and it has political uh, implications. It, it just doesn't seem too long ago to me that not only were these companies held in really high regard, almost like they were sort of our national champion yeah. companies, you know, kind of the very best of American capitalism, but their CEOs were held up as just great Americans, great American businessmen and entrepreneurs, whether it's... Google Google guys, listen, it may seem crazy to people now, but I don't remember that long ago when we talked about Mark Zuckerberg running for president. Yeah, he was he day. was in Iowa. He was, you know, it was kind of interesting. That was, what, 20, 2012, 2013? It seems like a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so is it, was it, ju- is it really, is it just the, is it just sort of the rise uh, of, um, of Trump and more populism? Is it, is it because of the uh, Russian interference overusing American social media? When did, is that really when it sort of began to, to turn? I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, but I, but to go back, it to doesn't what, seem, but it has, a, but it doesn't seem to really turn 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 among exactly, exactly. among everyday users. Yeah. I, mean, I I keep wondering how much of this is sort of a weird insular activist kind of politician issue. Mm-hmm. And cause I've seen, I mean, I've certainly seen surveys showing that when you people rank, you know, one of their biggest concerns, the the power of big tech 
is not very high. No, not at all. I, I, it just doesn't come to people's mind when they think about health care, for instance. Yet if you just listen to sort of the Washington debate, it would seem like this is by far the most pressing problem facing America. The uh, So I, I think you're exactly right with this. The other kind of nuance that I'd add as well here is that in Silicon Valley, it seems that they've almost kind of turned inward and they don't really like some of the products that they've created. So as much as you do see a lot of this action happening within Washington and kind of the Washington elite starting to kind of turn against these these large tech companies, you do have the kind of rank and file people within Silicon Valley themselves kind of step back and, and ask, you know, what is, this, what is this that we've created? What is the system that we've created? You know, are the communication services that, that we have, you know, supported and helped develop? about and are sustained by all, you know, by advertising and, and, and that sort of ecosystem, is that itself something that we think is good and should continue? So you're seeing, you know, these changes within Washington, but also changes clearly within Silicon Valley. But you're right, very, very bluntly, that most consumers, when they think about these these large tech companies, when they think about Amazon, when they think about, uh, you know, Google and Microsoft, they still have pretty positive opinions about them. Uh, and again, when you ask people to rank, you know, what are your biggest concerns? Reigning in tech companies is really not even in the top concern. You know, you see this in, in rural communities as well. You know, what's your biggest issue? And, you know, anything related to tech doesn't really even happen to be in the top 10. It, most of those don't even get really percentage numbers when you ask on these on these surveys. So uh, to me, what we're seeing is this change, this kind of fall from grace. And, and yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves us necessarily, which is which is what I think we're all going to be waiting for to see what especially what happens in 2020. All right. Well, you, you mentioned a, a few different issues, things mm-hmm. people are concerned about. Maybe I'll just run through uh, uh, some of them and get your thoughts. Uh, uh, one of the biggest ones, particularly, it seems more on the uh, on the left and the right, is this issue of corporate concentration, mm-hmm. uh, corporate power. The, that these companies are just too big and powerful, and they're squashing competition. And that's how they're staying on top. Uh, so, so let's just focus a second on the corporate comp- concentration issue. How much does that concern you? As an economist, uh, you worry about concentration as kind of like a you like a, capitalism you like competition well yes of right course. i mean that's, that's a bit, we, but, but what do you mean by competition and what do you what do you you know and so I, so it's kind of like a comp the competition question the concentration question really is is to me a first kind of test and whether or not you really should be concerned about an industry um and and you know again antitrust really does it a very similar sort of way you know you kind of have this initial test to see if if you need to look deeper in into the uh into the industry itself now, when it comes to concentration, very clearly, again, this the concentration numbers don't necessarily events the 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 fact that these companies are are Google has like n- Google has like ninety percent of search. For yeah. some people says like that should be the end of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google has ninety percent of search. It's see, it's you know, it's, a lot of people it seems like Amazon dominates uh, online commerce. Uh, fa- it's f- Facebook. All the all the big social media companies seem to be different flavors of Facebook. Maybe they call that flavor Facebook. Maybe they yeah. call it Instagram. Maybe they call it WhatsApp. So, I, so I think most people would look at it just at least at a, at a first take, saying, "Wow, these companies, uh, they seem to be dominate their markets." And particularly in the case of Google, you know, to a to a ridiculous level. So, how could that almost not be a problem? Well, the so. I think what we're what we're trying to struggle with is is what are the and which is what you're kind of hinting at here. What are the elements of competition? Because when you when you do look at, say, for example, Google, you know, they'll have in any given day something like 500 some changes to their algorithm. So they'll constantly change 
what their search results actually look like, practically speaking, because uh, because of of what they perceive as as competitive forces. So you know those that could include Bing, which they still do feel that they are very competitive uh, with. But by the same token, they also have this kind of push and pull, for example, with spammers and people who are trying to game the system. So. With search, you know, you have to look, and, and again, I think you need to do this with every single industry. You need to look at search and say, okay, what does the search industry look like? What are the potential, you know, alternatives to search? What is it that people are also, you know, using Google for? So a lot of times when people actually go to Google and they search for something within the search bar, they're really just looking for whatever the .com, you know, address site is for their, you know, for the, for the people that they already know about. So, you know, I was recently buying some stuff on, on Land's End. I don't know exactly what Land's End.com address is. So, you know, you go to Google and you look for it. That sort of competition is, is at least for them pretty ever present because they're constantly having to make sure that those search results actually, you know, net the kind of results that consumers want. Now, why, when we, why, why do they, why do they care? They got. They already have nine percent of the market. Uh, I mean, there are other search engines, but yes. they're really they're really an afterthought. So why why do they why do they make five hundred changes a day? Uh, other than to worry about spammers, why don't they? Like, they, it should be a finished product. They should be uh, they should be pocketing all that cash. Why yeah. are they spending? They spend a lot on R and D too. They do spend a lot. So why, on R&D. So why are they spending all this all this all this? Why are they continue to invest in this monopoly, highly successful? Un, you cannot challenge this search engine product. But it, so that I, I'm, it's unclear if you can't if you, if no one actually will be able to. Uh, let me step back. That's the impression I get, certainly. That 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 yeah. Just, just not to pick on Google, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're fine. They're 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 doing okay. Uh, but no, that, 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 that that they're that that they have such a dominant position mm-hmm. that you cannot you cannot challenge them, and they can do whatever they want, and therefore it's a it's just a, it's an obvious case of a, of a monopoly. And I, I mean, I'm not sure the solution is to break them up and to highly regulate them in some fashion, or break them up into you know Google, you know Google North, South, East, and West, different Googlets. <laughs> I, I, that there should be that, but that that's the idea that there that there may be the most obvious monopoly because they because everybody goes to Google for search. So I mean, what we're hinting at here is really. Uh, you know, what economists care about when they care really about competition, which is, for example, price or quality. So what I'm trying to highlight, at least with all these changes, is that Google, regardless of the fact that they uh, they are obviously a dominant player when it comes to search, they're still continuously uh, evolving their algorithm to ha- have high quality search results for individuals. That and that to me is actually a sign of competition of a, of a company that feels like it is um, under competitive threat. The, and again, you know, when we normally talk about questions of competition, it really has universally been related to price. So we're looking for the reason why you would have, you know, fewer competitors is so you can increase price. And again, you know, when it comes to Google search, that doesn't really exist here. Now, all these other companies ex- exist in slightly different markets. You know, Facebook does, in fact, have s- some pretty uh, intense competitors. You know, TikTok is changing pretty dramatically. You see Fortnite is also a pretty big competitor. So... A lot of when we're talking about competition, it means a whole bunch of different things, again, depending on whatever the industry is and whatever, you know, wherever that player fits in within the industry. Uh, and, and, and as policymakers, as they're trying to understand these, these markets, we really do need to do a deep dive in each one of the industry and where, where that, you know, where that player really fits. Who are their competitors? What, what is like the relevant market? Which is a uh, whole bunch of different markets right. typically. Yes. If, if, so, uh, if we look back five years from now, we looked at, uh, uh, particularly Google, Facebook, somehow Microsoft 
is not mentioned. Yeah, even though it is among the biggest. Yeah, yeah. But Google, Facebook, Amazon, those three in particular would probably get mentioned the most as being they should be split up. That should be that. Yeah, they should be. Five years from now, do you think those companies will have been split off, or pieces will have been chunked off from any of them? Um, depending on what the politics of 2020 look like. I mean, if we get a, if we get a Democrat in the the White House, I think that you will probably see far more, uh, pressure by a new, you know, DOJ and FTC to, to do something in these companies. Um, and that to me is actually somewhat worrying as far as competition and like new entrants. I still, you know, we're still kind of seeing where this market, you know, where this market turns out. I mean, you know, for example, when we talk about, about the, the, the cell phone market or the, you know, the, the smartphone market, that market really is only it's a little over 10 years old now. I mean, it's it's very important to remember that the iPhone was effectively released in 2007. So to me, we're still at a fairly early stage and almost like the teenage years when it comes to competition in, in this space. And in fact, a lot of the companies that we've talked about, you know, Amazon is getting more competitive in advertising in a way and competing with Facebook and Google. Google, for example, has made huge inroads into cloud services. And so what you see are these larger companies getting involved in a whole bunch of other markets and being competitive with each, with each other in those markets. And that, to me, is the sort of competition, the the new kind of nuanced competition that we're actually going towards instead of this kind of single, you know, GM versus Ford right. type of competition that we've seen in the past. If, if you look at some of the presidential candidates, I think Elizabeth Warren has focused on this the most, and she has a, she has a number of ideas for antitrust yeah. where she'd like to see how companies split up in different ways. But the history of antitrust is, is this is not easy. Uh, these no. cases take a long time, um, and maybe the, the, the resolution will be sort of not quite so clear what exactly happened. Then maybe the company won't be split up. Uh, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll have to change their behavior. So if you're asking for major changes in all these major companies, to me, this almost seems fanciful that you would get that in 10 years in one of these companies, much less three, four, five of the largest companies that you're going to be splitting all of them into different pieces and, and, and or are putting in, you know, different, you know, uh, restrictions on their behavior. It seems like a lot. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of research that suggests at this point that doing something along those lines that actually uh, breaking them up would be quite quite detrimental to uh, to consumer welfare. So that and this is something that we talk a lot about, obviously, in antitrust is how much are consumers impacted by potential antitrust actions, either, you know, the um, the limitations on certain kinds of behavior or breaking them up. I've been quite critical of, of you know, of calls to break up tech companies. For, for a number of reasons, um, among them, I think my biggest concern is that technically speaking, it's very, very hard in a way that potentially earlier in, you know, in kind of the earlier um, uh, examples like, you know, Standard Oil and, and AT&T, it was a little bit easier. Um, and the, the, the you know, the, the case that I consistently cite, which I think needs to be understood better, is the American tobacco case, which actually looks much more like a modern you know, a modern uh, multinational firm with integrated, you know, integrated businesses and offices and all of these sorts of things. And and what we saw with that, as well as a whole bunch of other firms, you know, in Standard Oil and AT&T, is that the immediate effect of, of breaking up these, these companies isn't really um, a huge change in the market itself. Consumers don't benefit all that much from it. And in fact, you know, Standard Oil's kind of the, the big thing that changed the oil market after Standard Oil was, you know, the discovery of, of West Texas crude and, and of the kind of the market that happened in Spindletop. So again, to me, it, when you look at the history of especially breaking up these tech firms or breaking up companies, rather, it, it, it I think it shows that, that 
really uh, breaking up tech companies is probably going to be very similar, that you're not really going to get a lot of consumer benefits in the in the near term. Uh, and ultimately, what, what we probably would want to end up doing is, you know, figuring out other ways to kind of incentivize competition in other spaces. And, you know, I've written a lot about this as well. Education is a really important starter here. You know, you know, questions of of um, of uh, figuring out uh, regulation because you know it's often very very costly to start a new business in in some regards. So there's a whole bunch of other things we can do to ensure do you competition. These, do you think these companies are quashing competition because either uh, they're so big and powerful that companies say you know we can't compete in their space, or they buy up young companies that may be potential competitors mm-hmm. to at least uh, some part of their business? Uh, that do you think there's good evidence that, in fact, that even though they're even though they seem like they're very innovative companies and they're spending a lot of R and D, that maybe in the end they're actually bad for competition or bad for innovation? Yeah, and again, I personally I would I hope that we're very nuanced about the industry that we're looking at. So a lot of the what you're hinting at here is this this you know this kind of. Um, uh, this, you know, this buyout question. So you're, right. you're basically buying out a new company to, to quash competition. That to me doesn't really, uh, track well with what's actually happening with a lot of these companies. Cause the fact, what you end up doing is you end up buying a company for their tech talent or some sort of knowledge that exists within the company. And then you integrate that through a platform. And in most cases, what you're talking about is, is, having an idea that, you know, is, is kind of in a smaller lab, you know, setting that, you know, that a small company may be working on that then gets implemented through an entire network very, very, very quickly. And in those cases, you're talking about a very pro-consumer outcome. I mean, those, these things clearly are very beneficial for consumers and society. The problem that I'm, I, I think that we really need to separate out here is that there is, you know, there's a larger question about what's happening, for example, in pharmaceuticals, which there's actually a lot more interesting evidence about, you know, buying up a competitor to, you know, to, to affect, you know, to actually stop, um, you know, kind of follow on innovation, as it's called. When it comes to the bigger tech companies, that um, that doesn't seem to be happening all that much. So, again, there's the, to me, there's just a lot of nuance to the sorts of things that we're, that we're actually concerned about here. Uh, another big concern is sort of just the basic business model of a lot of these companies, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, there are free services, but they use your uh, data uh, as part of as part of kind of a targeted advertising uh, business model. Uh, some people they just don't like that business model. I think yeah. that's a bad business model. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, what are sort of the you know? I think the upside is <laughs> these these services are are free. I don't have to subscribe to Google, um, but the downside is. Is what they that that they're not paying me for my data, uh, that the data could be misused. Maybe explain what people's concerns are and how you evaluate those concerns. Yeah, there's there's I think a number of of kind of layered concerns. First off, we do know that ad supported businesses are you know hugely pro. This is a novel. <laughs> not the first ad supported business. No, not at all. No, not at all. I mean, newspapers and radio and you know and television. Uh, those are obviously all ad supported models. We, you know, a couple years back, um, some researchers found that these, you know, ad supported, uh, businesses, uh, benefit consumers, something like to $7 trillion or something, somewhere around there. So we know that there's a whole bunch of, of benefit to consumers for these, these ad supported businesses. There is, however, a, a, a subset of concerns, which are very clear, and I'm not going to, not going to say otherwise that, that there is, you know, questions about data collection. Uh, and about privacy and uh, just generally how is this information being used to target specific kinds of ads. 
Now, in, in, a, in a number of interesting ways, the biggest players often do give you options to, for example, have, you know, to limit the kind of, um, you know, to limit the kind of advertising that is, that is being targeted towards you. So you have, you know, in a number of cases, you've got opt out. There's that little, the little blue marker when it comes to the, you know, the ad choices model, which almost no one uses. There's ways to, that consumers are actually clearly limiting how much the the biggest platforms and the biggest social media companies are actually looking into them. We know people use, for example, adver- um, you know, they're using these kind of um, um, these ad ghosting uh, apps all the time that, you know, that limit uh, ad collection and ad removal. So that's pretty consistent. A lot of people use use these sorts of apps. So there is obviously a very clear concern when it comes to privacy and data collection. That obviously is a big thing that's been happening with California. We you know, there will be a law that is going into enactment in about a month and a half, I think, or, you know, a little over two months now that is going to try to take a stab at that and at giving consumers more options to know what's being collected about them, to give them the ability to, to opt out. So there's a whole bunch of things so that are it, happening. So is it most, is it, is it a, is it just kind of a, a transparency issue? What are, comp- what, are, what is the consumer complaint that their, that their data is being misuse that they don't know what how the data they just simply don't know how the data is being used or the, or they don't have the tools to adjust that it sounds like there are tools people just don't bother with them which leads me to wonder how seriously people are actually concerned if they're unwilling to to really take any action uh, with the tools that are available to them. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the problem is that when we talk about privacy we're actually compressing at least two separate sorts of problems that that most people actually really do care about. One of them would be what you call, um, you know, data security. So this is really, at the end of the day, this is like identity theft and, right. and fraud, just, bl- you know, blunt fraud that people are taking your credit card information right. and they're using your credit card. When people talk about privacy and about, you know, ensuring that that your information is private, that is often what is included there. So you have this data security question as long don't as... Don't break into my bank account. Exactly. And don't look at my browsing history. All right, those are two big privacy issues. Exactly. Right? But people care about the breaking into your bank account far more. And we, in fact, find that with a whole bunch of surveys. Pew has done a whole bunch of really good work on this. And the census has done a whole bunch of really good work on this. So yes, the the break into my bank account is the is really the biggest concern. But because we use these kind of, you know, amorphous terms for privacy, that you know, the question about identity theft is often you know put into questions of of data collection, which is ultimately what the uh, what the, it seems to be the concern about about platforms and users on platforms. And so to me, there really is these the two somewhat separate issues that are going on what here. What is surveillance capitalism? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't really know. Because, I, you know, and this... Is that just, is that just a fancy uh, a phrase makes for a good book title, which they talk about yeah. and the just the current business model? I mean, we could... Use your data to, to, to provide, to serve you relevant... Sometimes, at least, sometimes yeah. relevant, relevant evidence. Is that what surveillance capitalism? It seems to be, yes. And People seem very concerned about. This. Yeah, this is the Shoshana Zuboff book um, on surveillance capitalism. I only got through so much of it, to be very honest, right. because it, it, I, I actually, it, the, the, that book in particular kind of bothers me because it's not, the usage of terms is, 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 is pretty, is pretty lax, and it really doesn't, it doesn't do a very good job of actually describing what the surveillance capitalism system actually looks like. It spends a whole bunch of time trying to build that out. Are worried about the surveillance part or the capitalism part? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I think it is this, you know, people are worried that, that people are kind of looking over their shoulders. And, and when we talk about Facebook and Google, we often use these terms as though they are these 
things that are actually looking at you. But again, you know, Facebook and Google aren't these monoliths. You know, one of my favorite examples is actually that the um, recently I, I learned that the Google um, uh, AdWords team was actually demoted by the Google Webmaster team because they were they were incorrectly following the the guidelines, and so the ad team was actually being being like actual criticized by the webmaster team. It was really, really interesting. You Very see typical these... monopolistic. Typical yeah, of course, of course. It's the conflict between two divisions. Should I, should I, be, should, I should Google be paying me or, 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 you know, for, you know, for using my data? Should I be paid for my data by any of these companies? It's well, so, it's so valuable. It's obviously valuable to them. So why am I not getting a check? Well, you are getting an implicit benefit. So the, the fact that you're not willing... getting a check, you're not getting a check. No. But then the question is, do you want to make a very in, in, a clearly implicit value exchange an explicit value exchange? So we know checks would be great. Checks would be great, okay. but then you probably wouldn't also get the benefit of the services. So you know, people when they you know, there's really interesting work that um, Eric Bjornhofsson has done on this. And when he asks individual, how much are you, would you be willing to be paid to not you know not use Google Search anymore? And it's typically you know eighteen hundred dollars a year. Would you? I mean, that's a pretty potentially big check or at least an implicit value that you're that you're placing on Google. Why do so many people think we should be getting checks? Because everyone wants free money, right? I mean, I want free money. I don't want to have to do anything and still get free money. Is it is it that the people say that we should be getting checks for our data is that they just don't believe the that that we're we're getting value for our time. They don't believe those studies um or, they, they I think at the core of it, I think somehow we're being taken advantage of. Yes. So, and one way to compensate, obviously, would be, you know, cash, money on the barrel head. Uh, but, but most you know, people, yeah, no, and, I, and there's, this is a really, I think a really interesting, and this is an area I'm trying to do more work in the next year. There's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity here. And, and what you're highlighting is this, this question of, well, for example, would people be willing to, would people be willing to actually pay for Google services or Facebook services? Most most people would not actually. They don't want to pay for these things. So something like, you know, typically about three-fourths of individuals, whenever they're surveyed, say, no, I will not pay for Facebook or Facebook or Google. But they clearly do get an implicit value within the use of the services. I the the It doesn't seem to me to be that people are really asking for these kind of value payments, except for people really in Silicon Valley, which has a very different sort of relationship to Google and Facebook, because those are obviously large companies that have a large, you know, industrial footprint there and they're, you know, there's tax questions. So to me, again, when you, when you typically ask people, well, do you want to be paid for your data? And then you start kind of doing follow on questions. Well, would you be willing to pay Facebook for that, for the use of their service? They say, well, yes, I, I want to be paid for the use, you know, for my data being collected, but I also, I don't want to have to pay for this service. And so there's, there's a lot of conflict here that individuals, it's understandable. Everyone wants free money. I want free money. And occasionally you'll hear for calls that maybe maybe these companies they're so big and they're so powerful and they're so so crucial. Uh, maybe we should maybe we should, they should be like maybe we should nationalize them or at least maybe there should be nationalized versions. Or Oof. I mean, uh, <laughs> how much better can Google Search get? I mean, why you know? There are people. Is that is that like just like three people on Twitter who want to do that? I think that is three people on Twitter, and and far more the Brits. Yeah. I, the Brits have a have a much more um, okay relationship with that. Again, we've you know we've tried some of this stuff, and it really just hasn't worked. Uh, even even the Brits have tried this, and in the eighties, a whole bunch of these services had to get deregulated anyway. 
the nationalization to me also is a very uh, i don't know what you get with nationalization that you wouldn't necessarily get with with a private service and and that's the other thing that i just don't understand with nationalization you get a whole bunch of really really tough questions about the first amendment which we haven't really even gone into that I don't know that um, in the United States you would actually be able to kind of sustain that through the courts. So there's a lot that's embedded that in 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 that sort of call. And and to me, I just don't think it's very it's not very practical sort of the to deal with the sorts of problems that consumers actually do worry about. Um, a little earlier, you mentioned people in rural areas. You've done some work on broadband access in yeah. rural America. How big of a problem is that? Is this and what should we be doing about it? There, uh, that's it's a really um, it is an issue. It does seem to be an issue that, um, you know, that some rural regions do not have Internet access. But the there are clearly kind of downtown areas that do have, you know, you know, Main Street typically does actually have Internet access. So, you know, I'm, I'm originally from uh, Springfield, Illinois, but my grandparents lived in Olney, Illinois, which is a small little micropolitan area in southern Illinois. And like many other rural regions, they have kind of a downtown core that very clearly does have internet access. And in fact, most of the businesses and retail shops downtown really do have quite fast um, internet access and have um, access to a couple different providers. But when you get out just a little bit, you know, say a mile away from the downtown core, which is again, where my grandparents lived, they don't have internet access at all. And in fact, you see this a lot. Micropolitan cores where a lot of the jobs are located in, in rural America, in fact, do have internet access. But when you get just a mile outside, they don't. And that sort of relationship between the kind of the economics of broadband and uh, this kind of rural density question is something that that really uh, policymakers are trying to grapple with. So how do you get more broadband in these these areas? Even if you were, I think even if you clearly were able to get more broadband into, you know, into where my grandparents were at, you're not necessarily going to get the benefits that you want to see, which which clearly exist in, you know, in economic, you know, new employment and new businesses and kind of, you know, better economic outcomes. And we've seen this writ large in the United States that that broadband subsidies and kind of broadband development isn't as clearly and cleanly tied to economic development as as you would think I mean, it would be. I mean, I, but there was a value to somebody who doesn't who is not who is living a mile away from of course the, of course the there's Metropolitan downtown core just being able to jump on the internet and you know do whatever watch YouTube or um, you know whatever would be, you know that there's there's a value to that and there if, clearly is if, yeah. if it's purely I mean it's, it's if it's purely a money and engineering problem. Uh, I mean, America has a lot of money. We have very smart engineers. Why don't we just, why don't we just fix it? Why doesn't the government just fix that problem? I mean, states are trying to fix this right now. And, you know, I, I think that what we're trying to figure out right now is, I mean, for, for one, let, let me say that it's a constantly evolving problem. So the broadband that you needed perhaps maybe five years ago is not necessarily the broadband that you need today. So you, there's a constant kind of upgrade path question. But states clearly are trying to trying to solve this problem. You've seen really in the last five years, I think, and, and really in the last two or three, that cities and localities are trying to figure out where there's broadband in their in their you know in their backyards or you know which areas do and don't have it. They're trying to do targeted uh, you know targeted grants and targeted loans to get uh, broadband into these very core regions that are that really need it. So. I, the federal government is still, and again, the federal government's still doing a lot. The, the FCC um, still spends something like eight or nine billion dollars per year on on various broadband development programs. There's a lot that's being done. It's just that it's in kind of fits and starts. It's in it's in bits and pieces. You have some areas that are doing very well. Like Hopefully this will be a a a public led effort or a private sector led effort. I think you're gonna have a little bit of both. Right. 
you're going to have private the private sector has clearly been leading on a lot of this. And in, you know, downtown D.C., we have quite fa- I have quite fast Internet. Um, it's some of the best in the world. Uh, but what you're trying to see, or at least what you are seeing happen, especially in some of these, again, the rural regions is you're seeing these localities work with ISPs and to figure out where broadband needs to be located and, you know, and, and help with it. And there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole range of options that, that, you know, localities are really trying to pursue because again, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do this, I think. Well, I'm, I'm really worried. I'm really worried. China's going to have all the AI. Oh, they're going to have all the good AI. They're going to win the race. Uh, are you worried about China winning the AI race? And uh, what should at least the federal government be doing to help advance that technology, if anything? Yeah, the the AI race, I um, I prefer to think about it as actually a, a question of leadership because with every previous technology, it hasn't necessarily been about the race to the quickest technology itself. It's always been about applications, new business methods, um, and the, really the application of education to, to, um, to, to business, to be, to be quite blunt. What we're seeing, unfortunately, in the United States is there has been um, some backward sliding when it comes to questions of education. And I, that really, to me, when you, when you talk to people that are concerned about the, the AI question, just generally speaking, the biggest and absolute um, concern that almost everyone cites is really it's really around education. Al- the algorithms are there. The hardware is cheap and can be accessed. And those are kind of the two things that have occurred in the last couple of years, obviously, that, that make AI possible. But the other thing that really makes AI possible and the thing that we really do need to get right is education. And a lot of that includes, you know, figuring out immigration. And, you know, some of the best engineers that work in the United States um, have come from other countries. They want to settle here because, you know, we have good jobs and there's often a lot of very nice places. If you're working on AI applications, you can actually go and work. That, to me, is really what we need to be focused on is really the two parts, the education and and immigration. What about that the government should be uh, investing more money both in basic research and maybe not so basic research. And then two, the government needs to take a more leading role in creating sorts of, I guess this just isn't an AI issue, but sort of technology hubs uh, where, where companies can sort of locate with research centers and universities and they all can sort of, you know, you know, you know like a, a mix of information. And that's really the key to taking the lead is more government investment and more government created tech hubs. So again, I, I what you've seen in the United States is is actually private-led uh, hubs that have already been created, and you know New York, Boston, Silicon Valley, Chicago, you know where again where I spend many, many years. All these are really are tech hubs. Um, they weren't necessarily created, even though they were supported by some government funding. They, these weren't really, you know, the Silicon Valley, even though, again, some of the initial investments did come from uh, government government contracts. There wasn't, there, obviously, there wasn't a master, let's, hey, go cr- create this uh, course. tech hub exactly. uh, in Silicon Valley. But certainly that there are people today who love the phrase industrial policy. They don't shy away yeah, from it. Yeah. They think that's what, that's what we need. We need a government-led effort to lead, much like China's, uh, but with our own spin, uh, you know, you know, industrial policy with American characteristics. That, that, <laughs> that, that, that I'm going to steal that. We, by we, the we way, need a, lot, <laughs> a lot more government-led, or we're going to lose not just the AI race, but races in robotics, uh, advanced manufacturing, 5G. The government needs to take a, I don't want to say this leading role, or a much bigger, heavy-handed role in all these technologies, because China's figured it out. So we need to learn. We need to learn from learn from China. I don't. I mean, China really is still in a number of important places. China is still 
trailing us in 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 some key technologies. But when it comes to R and D, which is a really big conversation that's going on right now, I mean, I'm I'm actually very supportive of R and D measures, and I, I think government. Yeah, yeah, and- yeah, yeah. Of course, which is which, and to be very clear, government funding of R and D for the for the last oh goodness twenty years has been a, among the highest it's ever been. And over time, government funding and R&D has, has focused less on the development part and more and more on the research part, so right. the basic research. But still, at the end of the day, the you know Chinese firms, let's be very honest, some of them are kind of pioneer frontier, you know, frontier firms as they're called. A lot of them still aren't in that frontier space yet. Um, there are obviously a kind of a couple big ones that, are, that we talk about a lot. But but every firm, regardless if it's Chinese or if it's American, is still going to suffer what's called, you know, the valley of death. You've got the basic research component, but you have to do a lot in order to take that basic research component and make it into an industrial product or a product that can be brought to market. The United States companies for years have been the leader in this. We've, you know, I think that's what Silicon Valley actually does the best at is, is commercializing technologies and not being complacent when it comes to management techniques. And again, um, not to say that there's nothing to be learned from Chinese firms, but United States firms and, and firms in the U.S. and, you know, in many areas and in, in Texas and in, in Arizona and in California and in Washington, a lot of these places still are hubs of, of, of important companies that are able to take that basic research that is clearly supported by government, but also supported by um, but also supported by corporate dollars. And they're able to actually make that into products that consumers want to use. Should American tech companies be building research centers? They already are. Ah, ooh, in China? Yeah. I would hope that you'd be able to bring talent over here. Um, That would actually be my... I'm concerned to you about that kind of thing. Because uh, that sort of national security aspect puts some of these issues, you know, some people... Slightly different way, yeah. yeah. Some people, you know, they just may be concerned in general that somehow China's going to take all the technology and then they'll have the technology and we won't have the technology and they'll build the companies of the future. But if that technology has a military application, then you worry about them having some sort of military edge. Is that is that a big concern of yours? Personally, I don't know that it's a necessarily a large concern for me um, because what you're still seeing is a lot of, you know, one of the benefits with globalization is still that that firms across the world are able to learn from each other. So there still is a lot of diffusion of learning. And we're seeing, obviously, in the United States, the United States companies do, in fact, you know, they they um, you know, they, they outsource their their research capabilities in many different areas. You know, there's a lot in there is a lot in in Asia, but it's not just in you know, it's not just in China. There's a lot in, you know, South Korea and Japan. There's a whole bunch of uh, corporate research firms. A number of firms work together in, you know, in research projects. So I'm not necessarily worried all that much about the the kind of the localization of, of research into one area or another. The question, and I think that we really do need to figure out and, and ensure, and again, what I think the United States and United States companies have done the best is they're able to, one, they're able to be competitive in a global market, which is something that that I still think that we need to spend a lot of time in, and and as policymakers really do need to be concerned about. They are good and have been good about commercializing products, and those two things have really have been have been really the the driving force of American capitalism now for over you know over a hundred years, and that's the kind of uh, those are the kind of characteristics that I really I want to keep. Uh, the research part obviously still will occur in the United States. We still have great schools. We still have great research parks. So I'm I'm not really necessarily worried about that as much. 
I do, however, worry that that there are some kind of changes and kind changes afoot right now that that would limit our ability to trade on a global scale and to also be competitive globally. And that that to me is actually the most worrying worrying part of uh, politics right now. So let me end with this. So if you're a policymaker Mm -hmm. and and you think that it's important that America remains the world's leading military power leading economic power and that and, and if you think that's driven by our our technological expertise so you want to make sure that we are we are constantly pushing that tech frontier forward what is the biggest policy or two biggest policies things that we should do or maybe no not do so I probably go back to what I said earlier, which is really we need to get immigration right. We need to figure out how to keep and retain the the best talent the world has to offer. The United States was and still is really a, a top um, destination for the uh, the smartest people in the world. They want to come and work here. So I, I think we really do need to figure that out. And then, you know, and second really is we need to we need to figure out more and do better when it comes to education. When, you know, I was recent reading recently about you know, some of the best schools in the United States, you know, Princeton and and Harvard and MIT still have pretty, you know, pretty small undergraduates. There's not a lot of people who actually go through them. Um, Figuring out how to do education well is really difficult. I'm not going to say it's easy, but I really do think that that that's the area that we need to be focusing on is really education and and immigration. And I think that uh, a lot of people in in our space and, you know, in the tech space really are, are very much in line with that. Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sky comes